to episode 20 of Poetry Worth Hearing, hosted by me, Kathleen McPhillamy, and with music by Alex Heen. Just saying that makes me feel quite proud, and if you go to previous episodes you will discover what a range of poetic voices the podcast has put on air. This month's focus, with the coming of the new year, has been on the idea of now. Our featured poet is Richard Price, whose work is very much of the now. Other poets include Jane Byrne, Tony Curtis, Helen Overall, Diana Bell, Richard Lister, Lynn Witcherly, Trish Broomfield, Steve Cherry and Dinah Livingstone. To find more details about the poets and their publications, as well as texts of unpublished poems, go to poetryworthhearing.biz Richard Price is well known as a poet, critic, teacher and editor. His collections have won many awards and his latest, Late Gifts, from which he reads some poems here, should do equally well. Richard describes his poetry as lyric poetry which tries to look closely at the usual themes nested in the poetry of family and relationship while exposing larger social and structural patterns beneath and beyond the intimate. You'll hear these themes reflected here in his poems and his comments on poetry and his poetic influences. Thank you Kathleen. Well um I suppose that the, the place where I, I first encountered poetry is the place that still means um, so much to me, and that is in music, in music. So uh, my household was full of songs from the radio and on the the record player, and there were layers of recent time in that. Um, so... Although I was born in uh, 1966, I still got a lot of 1960s um, lyricism uh, in the 70s and 80s. Uh, the household was like that. So uh, people like Simon and Garfunkel, the Beatles, Leonard Cohen. In the 1980s, especially Grace Slick and Jefferson Airplane from the 60s and early 70s, they were really, really, really important to me as poets as poets the um the the lyricism of um sam cook of the records that otis redding was making all too briefly were really really important and later uh, when i began to study literature the ballads and the scottish poems and songs were really important and i haven't really forgotten that um, there are layers built on top of that in my poetry education, but really that's where I'm coming from and that's where I'm going to. I, I, I really believe in that um, lyricism, a, a stylized use of the of the uh, the spoken voice, sometimes a musical voice. 
So that's that's where I'm coming from. What would be classic poems of that kind? It would be Tracy Chapman's Fast Car. I'm not going to, to read that. Um, you can find that anywhere you like. But think about the way that time is dealt with in that poem. I, I regard it as a poem. Um, the way time changes, 20, 30, 40 years changes within the space of three minutes. The way um, ambitions, the way that the city suburbs are played out through that absolute, absolutely beautiful miniature of a poem. It's, it's peerless. So songs like that really, really affect me. And I come from uh, that tradition, but not that tradition alone. When I was more um, official poetry conscious, it was really um, a case of being flooded by Faber. Faber's distributive power is massive, it still is. Um, and really, um, that was a, a fine selection of poets. You can't do much better than Sylvia Plath. <laughs> but it was a selection. It was a selection. And finding more than Faber has, has been a journey. So I suppose the first real kind of zap, the, the, the lightning bolt, wasn't any of those poets um, who had absorbed already. It was um, Guillaume Apollinaire. And I... I came across his work in a biography in a secondhand bookshop in Brighton, a biography by Frederick Stiegmuller. And the joy of that biography was that it wasn't just about his life. In some ways, it's a, in some ways it's a bit of a, a tedious writing of a very interesting life. It's not, not a great biography in, in one sense, but the really great thing about the biography was that he included translations of the work. And that just seemed to be so fresh, absolutely incredible work that, and there was nothing like that, not in Scotland, England or Ireland, absolutely nothing. And so I became really interested in that. And with my schoolboy French um, and uh, a fleet of dictionaries began to uh, try to translate or, or do versions. So I'm go gonna read one of my versions to, to try and get a sense of that. Um, strangeness, the strangeness of it, and the confidence of doing that. This is a, a translation of uh, Les Colchiques, uh, which I guess is um, autumn crocuses or saffrons, it's sometimes translated as. The ground's poisoned, but pretty in autumn. The grazing cattle slowly poison themselves. The crocuses Tired shadow color and lilac flourish your eyes. I like that flower. They're that purpley, like their circle, like that autumn. And my life for your eyes slowly sips poison. The school kids exit with shenanigans, dressed as hiccups and playing the mouth organ. They pluck the flowers like their mothers, daughters of their daughters, and the colors of your eyes. Lids flutter as flowers flutter in the insane gust. The drover sings so soft. The slow moving, lowing cattle have lost forever the huge field, bad flowered by autumn. I think that's 
a pretty good cross-section of Apollonaire's work. So you see an immense laden melancholy in his work, but also um, a kind of ecstatic excitement in very uh, very unexpected places. So although the, the general tone of that is love's doomed, the world's doomed, it's an environmental disaster, the old ways are going, totally true to Apollonaire, there's that excitement uh, to do with children, to do with wordplay. Um, it doesn't scan completely properly. He's mixed up all kinds of line endings. The uh, uh, Although, of course, you can't see this, the, uh, the punctuation is completely lost. So it's on the reader to put emphases here and there much more than is usual. So you're already grappling, you're active, you're, you're wrestling with Apollinaire. You're not sitting back and just receiving um, and I, I do think a lot of um, poetry that we're used to is, ah, here's a lesson we're going to have to take and we'll listen. It's uh, it, it's an earlier version of Netflix. Uh, we're, we're so tired. Um, we're just sitting there. Are we really taking stuff in? I wonder. Uh, I don't blame people for, for being in that position. Um, but I do wonder whether we have to grapple a little bit more with our poets to be alive. Um, so that's that really was um, my first zap, my lightning bolt. And I suppose I, um, as, a, as a writer responding to um, stimuli, if you like, um, not always writers themselves, but, but other projects, I sometimes hunker down and wait, just wait for the next zap. I, I I think there have only been I don't know, five or six in my in my life where I felt oh, I've really got to do something about this. I don't know, I don't know what, um, but Apollinaire uh, was the the first. I think within um, the the uh, the Scottish tradition um, there would be uh, Hugh McDermott's uh, "A Drunk Man Looks at a Thistle," um, which I um, I would say I imbibed. Um, it's just a phenomenal poem. It is a hallucinatory poem, um, very funny, very satirical, um, very, very beautiful poem. So I think that would be an, a, another one. Um, and other uh, other Scottish tradition poets that I, I think much of it, uh, would be people like Norman McKay, W.S. Graham, um, Edward Morgan was a big influence on me. Um, I think more as a mentor than than a stylistic influence. Um, I, I'm not sure. Lately, I've been interested in Margaret Tate's poetry, which um, is a kind of cross between D. H. Lawrence and the Beats. That's just a, a shorthand. Um, it's absolutely of its own, um, uh, and of course, a, a very very interesting filmmaker. Um, so um, her work, I find really really interesting and very, very unusual for the late 50s and 60s to be so openly thinking out loud. That, that's uh, what a lot of her poetry does. It's very relaxed in a way which is, in a way, completely against the Scottish and the English tradition. It's uh, what Lawrence was fighting uh, against as well. So I, I, I love um, her work. So what else? I think the work of Montale, um, also really, really fantastic. And so he 
also is a little bit difficult to pin down. So you've got these very austere early poems, um, which feel like you're walking in the mar in the marsh sea marsh areas of Liguria with him. They're they're, they're cryptic, um, buttoned down, and then you've got these um, flashes of romanticism, where he seems to have loved and lost everything in very very mysterious uh, circumstances. So. There's that. And uh, I thought I would read um, one of my engagements with Montale, one of his trans, uh, one of the versions I've made of, of one of his earlier works to give you a flavor. Well, is it a flavor? I've I've chosen one of his more human, softer poems. Um, he's actually at arm's length a lot of the time. And this is one of his addresses, uh, one of his few addresses that feels, I would say, protective. Um, and he's addressing a little boy. And so I've, I've incorporated it into my latest collection, Late Gifts. And he's, he's saying to his readership, as uh, to this boy and his readership, the whole system is going to crash. Protect yourself. And he uses the metaphor of the little boy's paper boats, which which have clearly been sailed off into the into the bay, and he's saying to the boy, "Get them out of the water, bring them high up, um, as high as the the farm's hedges, um, because the system is crashing." And I thought that was um, almost a um, an epigraph for um, this feeling in the book that we're. We're fighting for the generations after us at a, a genuine crisis point. So haul your paper ships up. Haul your paper ships up the scorched shore. And then sleep, little boy captain. May you never hear the evil spirits sailing now in flocks. In the walled garden, the owls had enough. The smoke from the roofs lies heavy. The work of months is a ruin. The moment arrives and it cracks in secret, bursts with a puff. The collapse is coming, maybe without a sound. The architects can sense their death sentence. Time to save their little jug of cream. Even looks like a miniature boat, just that. Tie your fleet up in the hedges. So I thought I, I would read some poems of my own and uh, just to finish this short reading. I suppose one uh, is in a way about an apocalypse. Um, but it's an apocalypse of our, our um, internal making. And the way that um, we, in a way, have been busied out of agency. So we are working more hours. Um, we're, um, we're working for less. We're worrying more. We're, we're trying to cope with um, those uh, massive anxieties about the planet itself and those anxieties themselves are enervating us um, are removing 
our agency to to actually do something about it. So the system itself, um, in this um, blind way, has designed um, a, a way of taking it, uh, the solution of the system away from us. And it's so, so hard to um, get out of that. So th this poem, Wake Up and Sleep, sounds um, counterintuitive. Go to sleep, go to sleep. But in a way, we need a deep sleep. We need to slow things down to get faster and better. So this poem is is working in that way. I think you can see uh, Apollonia in it, in that it it mixes tones. There's a, a kind of kerfuffle. There's, I hope, a kind of elegance. Um, and there's a kind of difference in speeds. Um, so that's that's where that's coming from. So this is from the collection Rays. So, wake up and sleep. Drowsy, finalizing the blueprint. Drowsy, verifying the footprint. Drowsy in data entry. Drowsy on checkpoint sentry. Drowsy and missing the asset stripping on dead street. Half asleep. Finger-tipping the spreadsheet, thumbing the defective directory of on-the-mind, on-the-mend, half-attended exes, half-asleep and just holding on to the handholds in the homemade purgatory of six-of-one custody, fro-and-two vexes, half-asleep quoting chapter and hexes from the ratified sleepwalking directive. Wake up outside your conscientious waking dream. Wake up and sleep. Wake up outside your ache, your late luscious, just what it seems. Wake up and sleep. Wake up to the what happened. Wake up to the case hardened. Wake up between look and leap. Wake up in the shatter and decades steep. Wake up and sleep. Say good night to shaking. There's a waking over waking. Scowls and scarlatina are the stories in the clinic cantina. More at the morgue does tend to mean less. Owls in the ocarina are glories in the night arena. But leave them for a week, I guess. Sleep's demeanour improves life's fever. You need to nod to get to yes. Peace and quiet for the codes and the kids, for the didn't-haves and the nearly-dids. Rest your roads, your well-rids. Peace and quiet for the sky-deep, ocean-high equation. No tended baggage, advantage adage, panic profitations. No palpitations, peace and quiet for the offence taking nations within nations. Peace, not a peep. Please, sleep. Here's a, a poem which goes back to what I was talking about in terms of my um, love of songwriting. I love the lyric. 
And um, this is written in a song form. You always hope when you commit it to the page that it's going to be a page poem as well. All that anxiety bites fingers. Whatever. Whatever. Um, I think a long term time ago, I would have worried about that. Now I see really poetry as the 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 ur literary form, the big umbrella. So anything with words in it is really a subsection of the perfect, of course, unachievable category of poetry. So films, novels, poems and songs. Sorry, they're all poems. Um, and if you don't have the apparatus to uh, talk about that, you should you should start making the apparatus rather than saying, oh, that's not a poem. I don't need to think about that. The air that he breathes. I have a little boy, late gift in last days. He laughs so freely, and that's how he plays. He doesn't see nothing's free, at least not the air that he breathes. I walk with him, I take his sticky hand, we risk the road, he skips to a scrap of land. Beneath old trees, refugees twitch in their sleep. Oh, we're all sharing the peace and the air that he breathes. There's a five-a-side field, it's all marked down for shops and flats, affordable homes and zero rate of tax for land bank owner absentees. There's a government decree. There's a short-term lease on the air that he breathes. I never thought I'd leave this world with the children fighting for air. I never thought I'd see this greed and leave them choking there outside at the gated community wall. I didn't think at all. I believe the things we need should be free, including the air that he breathes. I have a little boy, late gift in last days. He laughs so freely, and that's how he plays. I suppose one of the, the uh, poets I didn't mention was a poet who means a lot to me, and that's Tom Leonard. Um, particularly his attention to the, um, I would say, the breath on the page. And um, so that's a, a sound uh, element, um, but also to this question of um, being open to thinking not telling um, the reader, I have this thought, it's a great thought, and you are now going to be very lucky to have that thought. Um, and if you haven't got that thought by the end of the poem, it's going to be a couple of lines right at the end of the poem, which is really going to nail it for you. Um, that um, That is not, generally speaking, uh, the, the, the kind of poetry that I write. Um, so this is um, a poem I hope, um, I hope, dramatizes that total concentration when he is almost on his own playing on the rocks and he's, he's singing humming i'm not sure how you'd classify it total concentration and his body is moving too 
fluently. He's dancing. When it's him and me, we're, we're watching an anime and we both, we both feel the, the shockwave. The parents, they've been turned into pigs. Serves them right. But even so, and the, uh, the last train moves through shallow water, incremental inundation, the end of the world by seepage. Love to be on that train, Dad. Me too. Can we? When it's all the family, what's left of it? A wedding or a, a Sunday front room. And there he is dancing again. Everyone knows he has that gift. Celebrate him. Celebrate us. All life. Because everyone had something of that. That gift once. No, still does. Or so what? Keep dancing. And maybe I'll finish with a poem. Um, and what is that poem? Uh, it will be a short poem. <laughs> Don't worry. It's just a page long. And it's called, it does have a name, it's called Are You Still There? And it incorporates a little bit of singing. So um, cringe, cr cringe protocol should now be uh, applied. Uh, your toe, toes should be ready to curl. Um, and um, you can clutch your hands with your fingers so your nails begin to dig into your palms. Are you still there? Are you still there? The sea is talking in its sleep. Are you still there? The sea is talking in its sleep. Are you still there? The sea is talking in its sleep. Fond names and no blame each. The sea would crush you, but you keep it within reach. Are you still there? The sea is singing in its sleep. Hard tunes. Songs ground from speech. The sea would crush you. But you think it's here to teach. Not every question sees the light on the hill. Not every question gleans the spoil from the spill. Do you think a question will keep the waves still? If yours won't, no one else's will. Are you still there? The sea is talking in its sleep. Are you still there? The sea is talking in its sleep. Are you still there? The sea is turning in its sleep. Stone dreams and bodies on the beach. The sea would crush you, but you keep it in reach. Are you still there? The sea is talking in its sleep. Are you still there? The sea is talking in its sleep. Are you still there?
Thank you so much, Richard, for the reading and the singing. Next, another wonderful poet, Jane Byrne. I saw this poem on Facebook. Apparently it was originally published online by the Blue Nib. As it seems very pertinent to this month's theme, I asked her to record it. Anniversary. Forgot. I remember when he still cycled, had carved calves, brown thighs under those shorts. I never got used to such a clearly described scrotum. We have drooped. I remember when he and I were two stone lighter. Age has beckoned our bits down. I used to look, you used to look so carefree. We have said what we wish we had not. Life, it chips away at you. You find yourself changed. Him and me, you couldn't have slid a feather between us, close as a bird's breast hiding an egg. We were. We have both been cruel. Yet sometimes there is tenderness still. We are suspicious of everything. We both ride roughshod. We know what it is to fight. 21 years ago, I told him about my unsolvable things and he still wanted me. Strength for two, he promised. Strength is a brick wall and I have run into it headlong. I am the only one who has seen him cry, but it has cost too much to coax. When we were at our worst, he said, sometimes I wish we had never got married. I have tried to unhear it. I have failed. I say, I love you, love you, love you. Much, too much. I scuttle and faff as I think a wife or mother should. I know I am cloying. They both make moves to shuck me off like a spoon levering a boiled egg from its shell. A spatula loosening crust. From the road I saw this plot of skinny pines. One of the trees had uprooted, leaned itself into the head of another as if to say, somebody, please catch. I wanted to wrap myself round its dying thread. Sometimes all the affection 
has gone from my head. And now, from Wales, the eminent poet Tony Curtis reads two poems from his forthcoming collection, Leaving the Hills, published by Seren. For more details, go to poetryworthhearing.biz. Belgian Hares On the drive from Pilkham to Artillery Wood, in the wide field's stubble, we see a hare rise up from its haunches, stand tall, then with sinewy legs, stretching and pumping, bound directly into a solid wall of ripe corn to disappear. There is no metaphor here. That July at Charleston. Serving dinner, Grace looked upset. It seems the village has had two telegrams today. Duncan says with the harvest and the hay, they are already lacking the men. Virginia helped Grace clear things away, which is certainly unusual. Some 30 miles across the channel, England is piling up its dead. Had we not heard the big guns carried on an east wind? At breakfast, the teaspoons had rattled again on our saucers, Vanessa said. Helen Overall is our next poet, with two poems reflecting on time and now. The pulse of now. This is what we know, this in-breath, the pause, the sigh of exhaled air. All our yesterdays lead to this, our tomorrows unfold, moth-winged, dappled by radiance of soul. The luminance bright as the stars in a desert night, great clusters, brimful, spilling over with light. Steadied by that sense of presence, those here among us, those long gone, enfolded within this moment, known to us by the least whisper, the call of the song of the world. Take a breath, take a breath, a moment, let the busy world still. Consider the slow silver glide of the snail, footbound, eyes on tapered tentacles, the dip and sway of spiral shell that sets rock fast at shadow strike, sight enfolded, head, tail withdrawn into silence. Notice the sheer persistence in grazed and nibbled leaf, the within-green lacework, sifts of layered light. And now, in contrast, a very different poem from Diana Bell, the artist and poet. On the Edge Breathe in, breathe out, heart beating, 
flutter of life. Eyelids drop like blinds against the world. Voices float without answer. Throat a burning fire, lungs filled with knife blades, spitting words like choking on glass. Limbs detached, skin burns, belly a sunken pit. All feeling evaporated, heart beating, breathe in, breathe out. Next, a welcome return by Richard Lister. My first poem talks about how now is rooted in layers of then. Give me a child. Nadia, chipped front tooth, crouches as close as she dares to a sputtering gas burner. Her left leg trembles. Where's Dad? Distant voice of a Russian shell. Rewind to Putin, alone on stage, in the cream polonek jumper of a talk show host. 200,000 Russians waving red, blue and white. Some bust in, some true. Further back, Agent Victor sips a slick of raw quail's egg from a mug. FC Spartag Moscow tries not to gag pauses ten beats for poison. No spasm, so sends a glass flute upstairs to the president. Yeltsin, cream-moulded hair, pours his smile over an apparent chick, a neat man at the margin of the hall, blue cardboard folder under his arm to carry his notes. Stop. Breeze block room, sputtering gas burner, and a tin sink crammed in, its surface so cold Putin's boyish hand sticks. Rats that terrify the dogs. My second poem talks about the richness of a moment. In their wake. Last week, the magnolia was an exuberant stroke, bold and bright against a powder blue sky, each flower fat with life lush pink, air soaked with its earthy scent. And now, as its petals curl, and dry to crumpled beige and fall. I feel I'm walking in the pause that follows God and Adam's evening stroll. The grass in their footprints still bending back to shape. Two very different aspects of now. 
Next, Lynn Witcherly gives us an extraterrestrial now and a very different look at now and then. To a neutron star. Who are you, cold heartbeat? How many times has your tireless pulse touched the toiling atom of my life? In nebulae, your note of snow intones now, now. Ice moots in Vela, the crab. After the explosion, only you remained a small bright face suspended, angel child in a ravaged field, gas clouds flung round you, lit dust, scarlet and lime, a plerion and all the hair-lipped outrush of its bloom. You flick a feather through our sight lines, the jay-blue O of our world. Through desert arrays, our upturned eyes staring from a susurrus of sand to catch the sleet of your lonely note forever, now, now. In a church near the M40, in memory of Dr. J. R. L. Highfield. Ironstone, you read its glow, warm bergamo, the now of then, how light suspends, warden Gilbert gazing from stained glass. Beyond, the road is restless, Carbon screed, it cries, it bays, time's furore, time swept away. Trish Broomfield is a poetry worth hearing regular. Here she is with her poem now. Now. Now, I would ignore the time I thought I did not have. I would say, yes, let's go. Push my way through people, grab the last window seat. I would graciously allow you to pay for coffee, say yes to cake. I would be empathetic and listen instead of talking. I would treasure every moment of our time together, not regret that when I could, I did not say yes. Steve Cherry describes his poem as a lost now that didn't happen. Or never. Just an ordinary black and white snapshot. But see how the curves of the parked MG and its open door span and divide the picture space with such balance 
no other arrangement seems thinkable. The central subject, a dark-haired child, his skin unblemished under the foxed emulsion, one white-socked foot resting on the running board, box of chocolates on his lap, can only be me gazing out past the camera to connect directly with his own eyes reflected from my grizzled head. But as I look back at him, what if unsettles what is, and could have unravels did? Maybe a swerve occurs in my mother's timeline, and a mining accident kills her dad in his prime, so the family cancels the van booked for the move down south, where a different history is waiting, and her life rolls out in the confines of her village, so she never holds me, never knows me, nurtures another lad's hunger for books. Her son, who has the mind of an engineer, says blood to rhyme with good, and is the one to lick scrapes of her spiced cake batter from the wooden spoon. Or other circumstances veer, and a young evacuee's ship reroutes to avoid U-boats in the Atlantic, and my father's people land somewhere not England, so he never knows me, never holds me, vanishes from the story, taking with him his colour sense, his gift of wordplay, and it's not me copying his jazz hands on the dance floor, but his athletic son, destined to make his name as a doctor. And she emerges from her back door into a flood of winter sun, it's Christmas Eve and marriage the last thing on her mind, and he opens his curtains on a square of blazing sky criss-crossed by parakeets, and the photograph fogs in my palm, its shadows spreading to engulf the car's interior, fluted leather upholstery, and the reclining form of the passenger, last detail to go, the catchlight in his young eyes. And finally, Dinah Livingstone, with two poems which are just right to welcome the new year. This poem is called Just Right. I live on earth in the Goldilocks zone, not too cold, not too hot, but just right. I've got a Goldilocks bed with a mattress neither too hard nor too soft, but just right. I wish but don't always manage to live my day in the Goldilocks way, not idle, not overwhelmed, but just right. And if I invite someone to supper, make them a pie with a gratin topping, its browning should be not too pale, not too burnt, but just right. It's not always that easy. In some encounters, it's hard not to say too much or too little, too many words or too few, to get it just right. The same goes for words in a poem. Stop. New Year 2024. Today, the 1st of January. Still early and dark grey. The London plane tree at my window 
holds out its naked arms and knobbly fists to the new morning. Here I am, aching for spring greenery. Yes, to another year. It's seen at least a hundred. Slowly, the light increases as the sky becomes pale blue. So that's the end of the 20th episode of Poetry Worth Hearing. We have heard poems celebrating the Nile and poems which present it as terrifying. Poems which view the then in the light of the now and poems which interpret now in relation to the past. Or perhaps that's the same thing. This is a collection of quality poems. Please listen, enjoy and share with friends. Remember, you can find more about the poets and their poems at poetryworthhearing.biz.